Colossians 3, verse 5. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there's not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony, And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Let's pray. Father, we do entrust um, our hearts and our minds to your word now, that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you would instruct us and teach us, open our eyes that we may see wonderful things from your law, I pray now in Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. So in our study of Colossians, as we've begun working our way through this book, Hopefully you remember the theme of Colossians is the supremacy of Christ. Uh, Christ is supreme over all. We've seen that as we've studied each text. And again, if you haven't noticed, the sermon title is a name of Jesus each week. Uh, So it's, it's a way that we see the supremacy of Christ. One of the ways that we see his supremacy is that he is revealed as the word. We read that together this morning from John's Gospel. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. In Jesus, the Word made flesh, who dwelt among us, we see God revealed to us. And then this revelation has been handed down to us through the written Word, the Holy Scriptures. We don't have an oral tradition. We have a written tradition. It's not the tradition of men. It's the tradition of Scripture. This means that we don't come to Jesus to know Him subjectively. His revelation has been written objectively. And so for this reason, we study God's Word. We uh, meditate on God's Word. We spend time in God's Word. We preach God's Word that the Word of Christ may dwell in us richly. In other words, we can know Jesus for who He says He is through His Word. That's how we know Christ. It's not about our opinions and our feelings. We have those. Certainly not up to to our traditions or for the ever-changing whims of the culture, including the culture of evangelicalism. The person of Christ is revealed to us in His Word, the Bible. That's how we know Him. And so we're studying Scripture, but we have to remember 
that we're not coming to Scripture for information. That's a part of the equation. There's information. We look at this, but we're not getting to know information. We're not looking to fill our heads. We're looking to know someone. We're looking to know Jesus. So don't ever let that become your motivation. It's easy to happen because it's fun to learn. It's exciting. And sometimes you, you begin to feel maybe a little extra spiritual because of your growing knowledge and think, God must love me a little bit more. Now all of this, the whole point of Scripture is to bring you to Christ, to know Him, to trust Him, and to love Him more. The writer of Hebrews tells us that the Word of God is living and active and sharper than a two-edged sword. So because of this, the living and active Word, we seek to let it dwell in us richly. The text that we're looking at today, if you notice when we read it, is very, very practical. Paul is beginning to get really specific with what he means. What does it look like to have been crucified with Christ and now be raised with Christ? What does that look like? He gets practical in describing this putting off and putting on process that in a spiritual sense describes getting dressed. It's something that we do every day, hopefully. We get dressed, we, we put on, we take off dirty clothes and we put on clean clothes. And in a sense, that um, illustration carries true because spiritually, this is an ongoing process of sanctification. The Lord reveals something in our hearts that we hadn't seen before or we didn't realize was a real problem, uncovers, roots it out using the, the means of grace, and we realize we have something to deal with. And so we, we're ripping that off. And all the while... We're putting on Christ. That we, the new self, after the image of the Creator, that's what we're putting on. And what I'm saying to you, the reason I talked about that objectivity of Scripture is it isn't subjective. We don't have to guess. We don't sit around in a huddle saying, well, Jesus means this to me, or I think Jesus is that. We can go to His Word and know. And so as we begin looking at this... um, One illustration that came to my mind last night... um, I watched a documentary, and it was on North Korea. So now you know why I prayed for North Korea this morning. North Korea, for a few reasons I won't get into this morning, has a a close place to my heart, a place I've been interested in and studied. And this documentary, uh, it's heartbreaking to see, you know, what life is like there. But in this documentary were a few stories of defectors who had been able to get out. Very few are able to get out. What happens when a defector is able to leave North Korea or any closed totalitarian government country is that once they escape and they're across the line, their status has changed. They're now a defector. They're, in a sense, they're free. But their self is not immediately changed. The images of what they've spent their entire life experiencing don't go away. It, the, the, the dreams, their dreams haunt them. There is a constant fear to look over their shoulder and wonder. Even though their status is free, they're constantly reminded and dwelling in that past. And so they're, in a sense, needing to rip that off and remind themselves of the truth that they now have this freedom. And yet it's an ongoing process and one that doesn't end. It's not a perfect illustration, but I hope that maybe helps us understand what Paul is in a sense describing of what happens in the life of the believer. 
that even though our status is that we have been raised with Christ, we're still dealing with our flesh and we're having to rip it off, rip it off like layers. One of the things as we jump in here to verse 5 that, that you may find remarkable with this first list is that it's not surprising. I mean, when you look at the list, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry, on account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. You may look at that, and depending on what generation you grew up in, we, we said, no, duh. <laughs> in other words, yeah, of course. Those are bad things. We know that as believers. There's nothing surprising in there. This is the way, this is the old life. And nothing here that should surprise us. Well, but it's important for us to look at this because we have to get honest with ourselves that all of these things are in the recesses of our own hearts. They're there, creeping, different struggles for different ones of us that come up. If we didn't find something in that list, Paul's going to get to another list in a couple of verses to add a few more things. Um, there's no one left standing after that list, right? These are things that are, that are in our hearts. And even as redeemed believers, the struggle is still there to put this old way of life away. Paul says in verse 7, And these you too once walked when you were living in them. The point of the list here, either list, is not for Paul to be exhaustive. He's not trying to capture all of the potential sins that are out there, but just simply to put just enough out there for us to go, yeah, (laughs) Um, but for the grace of God go I. And that's really what our response should be. You know, we ought to be very concerned when those little thoughts come up in our heart and mind that say, oh, I could never. Oh, be careful when those come up. Be careful. It's God's grace that protects us and saves us. And as we grow in Christ, sometimes we can forget what those old ways were. We have to be careful. The evil one is, is eager to vandalize. He knows he's defeated. He knows the end is in sight, but he's on a chain, but he's trying to do everything he can to trip up believers, to, 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 to tempt us and lead us into sin. Don't believe his whispers and his lies. The former way of life we have left behind, but that leaving, much like we look at in the life of a defector, is an ongoing process. And we, we see this pattern in a number of scriptures that describes something that has happened past tense, but continues to happen now and will continue to happen tomorrow. Just like we can say yesterday, we took off our dirty clothes and put our clean clothes on, and today we did the same thing, and we know tomorrow we're going to have to do the same thing. It's an ongoing process. Uh, An illustration would be that if you said to a a neighbor, "We, we called Seth as our pastor. What you mean in that statement was last year, we called Seth as our pastor. Seth is currently our pastor today, and hopefully Seth will be our pastor tomorrow. I'm saying hopefully for me that I continue to get to be your pastor. You don't have to say all of those things. All of those things are implied in that one statement. It happened in the past, it's currently going, and it's continuing. It will happen tomorrow. That's what we see in that sanctification description uh, of this putting off and putting on, and we see it in other passages of Scripture, such as Romans 8, but if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. It has this ongoing sense. If anyone, Luke 9, Jesus' words would deny after, or would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily 
and follow me. There's that ongoing sense. We did it yesterday, we get up today, we deny ourselves, we take up the cross, and we follow Jesus. Romans 6.13, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. Our status is secure in Christ, but we walk by faith, not by sight, don't we? And sometimes we forget that we have been seated with him in the heavenlies. And so we are having to rip off the old and put on the new. In verse 8, Paul adds the second list, and this is the list that, again, will make sure no one's left standing. But now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. And even if you haven't had an angry outburst, remember what Jesus said about murder, that even if you have it in your heart, he said it about lust, even if you lust in your heart. So we know, without, even if no one else sees the outburst, we know what ruminates in our heart. And we know that we need a Savior. We need the forgiving grace of Christ. Why does Paul um, add to this list? Well, one, we need to be reminded. Uh, mentioned it last week. We have a little legalist inside of every one of us that likes to rear his head at times and tell us that we're really good and really smart and doggone it. People ought to like us because we're so righteous. And we have to put that away. We need to be reminded But also, sometimes we just need specifics. We just need to look at the list and start to think. Anger, you know, malice, envy. Where are these things? Where, where, Where am I struggling with these things? Where are they showing themselves in my life? Specifics help us deal with our own hearts, but specifics help us deal with others as well. There's this one-anothering component that comes up later in this text that speaks to how, in a sense, what the body of Christ ought to look like is the sense that we're co-counselors. We're, we're, we're all speaking into each other's lives, that we have the kind of relationships that we can come alongside a brother or a sister and encourage them when we see them struggle. Because, not because we have it all together, but again, because, but for the grace of God, there go I, and I've struggled with this, and let's you know, walk together. It helps us help one another. Sometimes we think of sharing burdens or carrying burdens is all about when we suffer, when we're sick, when we're ill, when we've, we've, we've had loss. That's a t- well, that certainly is a time to, to share the load, but it's also a time when we struggle, when, we, when, our, when, our, when our faith is weak, when we doubt that we need the one anothering um, that we see in this passage and in others. We also see in this passage this uh, progressive process of sanctification, that we have died to the old way of life, we are dying to the old way of life, and we need to die to the old way of life tomorrow. The Heidelberg Catechism says, even the holiest men, while in this life, have only a small beginning of obedience, obedience to God's commandments, yet so that with earnest purpose they begin to live, not only according to some, but according to all the commandments of God, There's this earnestness and purpose and beginning and ongoing sense of our sanctification. Walking in new life in Christ includes this putting off, but then also putting off or putting on. If you think of an experience of of going into a laboratory and you had a lab coat on and you looked down and you realized you had spilled acid on the lab coat, what would your response be? You would... Would you just casually, you know, take it off? 
I mean, you would just rip it off, wouldn't you? Because you know the caustic effect of acid is going to do damage to you. That's the image that Paul is using in these words to describe, to put off these old ways of life. We would rip off the sinful past of sin because they're dangerous. Sin is dangerous. It will not only harm us, but our sins harm others as well. And ultimately, these displease our Heavenly Father. But by the power of Christ within us, when we're convicted of sin, we are able to rip off these old ways. And if you're struggling with something and you think you, don't, you, you haven't had victory in it and it's not, I'm going to remind you that it is a process. Don't expect to pray one time and say, God, take this away and for it to disappear. Part of this is because he wants to teach you about himself that he is not a high priest who cannot relate with us, but one who walks beside us and with us and empowers us so that you learn to rely on him. After this list in verse 9, Paul punctuates it by saying, Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices. the list probably give us some insight into some of the things that were happening in Colossae. I think this specifically, uh, there must have been some issues with lying, dishonesty. It's a call to honesty and transparency within the body of Christ. That's what the church ought to look like. We ought to be a people who tell the truth, who speak the truth, that we're not hiding, that we're not deceiving, that we're not lying to other one, that we're not duplicitous or hypocrites, that we speak the truth. And one of the ways that we do this is being honest about our own struggles. It doesn't mean that we, you know, send an email, mass email to the church and say, you know, this is where I'm struggling this week. But that we have the kinds of relationships within the body that we have those with whom we can share our struggles. Would you pray with me for this? Would you walk with me through this? That's what the body of Christ ought to look like. Not just that we answer questions truthfully, but that we share our lives with a sense of honesty and truthfulness. No one in this room is without sin. So we're all in this together. And so as we seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated, seated at the right hand of God, then we collectively set our minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. In other words, we're doing this individually, but we also do this corporately. We're all in this together. We're all being transformed into the image of Christ. So that's the put-off component. And now he gets to the the put-on component in verse 10. We read, Put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after its image, or after the image of its creator. This new life that's been given to us when we were crucified with Christ and raised with Him, that's our status. That is what we believe by faith. We know that it's true, but we don't really see it because we're still in the world. We're still surrounded by the fallenness of the world. We're still in the flesh. We know our own struggles. So that while our status, we hold on to that by faith, our experience is this struggle. But the status does change us. Much like that defector who comes out of that totalitarian regime, their new status is immediate. The change isn't, but it does bring change. Slowly but surely, they learn to realize they have freedom, that they can go out of their house, read the newspapers they want to read, buy the things that they want to buy, live without fear of looking over their shoulder, share an opinion without fear of retribution. 
That's the same thing that we're learning to do, that our new status. In other words, our new status of being raised with Christ produces fruit. There is a result, a fruit of this status. If you look at the list, well, we'll look at the list in verse 12. Before, let me, let me point out, Paul interjects verse 11, which seems a little bit out of place. Look at it. Here there's not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave-free, but Christ is all and is in all. Why does Paul interject this? Well, again, this is some insight into some of the problems that were happening in Colossae. We don't know all of the specifics, but we can assume from this verse as well that part of the, part of the problem was this was a di- very diverse group of believers. And it's true within any church. You know, we all have different experiences and backgrounds. We have different ways of saying things and doing things. And, you know, we have different expectations for the way things ought to be done in the church. And has that ever known to create friction in a church? You know, have you ever heard jokes about you know, church splitting over the color of the carpet? I mean, the reason we chuckle is because we know those things are true. And what is Paul painting a picture of here is that Christ is all and is in all, meaning the gospel works in all cultures and among all people groups. The gospel works in all cultures and among all people groups. It's another way of saying Everyone is equal. We are all created equal by our Creator. And so even the most savage of person or the self-righteous, most self-righteous of person are all within the hope of the gospel. We can't rule anyone else. We're all equal in that we've all sinned. We're all equal in that we've all been saved by what? Grace. None of us can claim superiority in the body of Christ. This is what Paul's point is. And so we can have hope for those who seem far from the gospel, and we are also humbled by this, knowing that we are not superior to anyone. There is no superiority in the body of Christ. This is amazing grace that has saved us and keeps us and holds us. And then, after that interjection, Paul comes back in, and he calls the Colossians God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. This is very unique language. Do you recognize where it comes from? This is the language that God used of Israel. This is how God spoke to His covenant people in the Old Testament. Peter echoes this in 1 Peter 2.9, but you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. It's the language of God's election, that God chose us before the foundations of the world. And here it's applied to the body of Jesus to the church of Jesus Christ. Listen to the words in Deuteronomy 7 to Israel. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set His love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that He swore to your fathers. And that's true of you as well. God didn't choose you because He looked through the quarters of time and realized you were going to be a swell pick, a good catch, He loved you before the foundation of the world and set you apart for salvation. In Exodus 19.6, And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words God is saying. These are the words you are to speak to the people of Israel, Moses. So this language, this Old Testament covenant language is here now made true for us as the people of God in the body of Christ. So because God has set His love on us by calling us from the darkness, uh, kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, 
we are to put on the new self in the image of the Savior. Here's this first list, compassionate, or rather compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Does that remind you of another list? Sounds a lot like the fruit of the Spirit, doesn't it? It's because it's a lot like the fruit of the Spirit. <laughs> That's what God's doing. Like I said, our status changes, and that new status produces fruit. It's not the status that produces fruit. It's the Spirit that produces fruit. It's God's Holy Spirit who He imparts into the lives of believers when they come to faith in Christ. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. This is what it looks like to be made after the image of the Creator. So when you read that in Colossians 3 and you think, what does it look like? And I said before that it's objective. We can know. We don't have to guess. Because we can come to this list here. We can come to the list in Galatians 5 and say, this is what it looks like. So, if you think you're doing okay, maybe you can ask your spouse how you're doing. Maybe go through the list or ask your, your children. I'm not doing this later, by the way. Um, you could ask your ch- <laughs> children how you're doing. Uh, ask your parents how you're doing. Ask a friend or a loved one, how, how am I doing? Give us some insight. But the good news is we're not limited to our own power. It's not up to us. It's not like we get up and say, I'm going to try hard to be good and, and, and you know, put on all of these fruit. It's the fruit of the Spirit, not the fruit of you. What relief is that? Thankfully, it's not up to our power because we're limited and we're fallen. We have the Holy Spirit to manifest this fruit in our lives. And then in verse 13, he adds, Bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. This is what the body of Christ is to look like. We are to be a people who bear with one another. This means that we not only bear one another's burdens, but we also forgive. And notice he doesn't add qualifiers here. He doesn't say, forgive when they apologize to you. Forgive when they have made restitution. Forgive when they act really sorry. He just says, forgive. Why? Because God has forgiven you in Christ. The forgiveness that you and I have received in Christ is so amazing, so huge, so overwhelming, that we should be compelled to forgive anyone who sins against us. Remember when Jesus spoke to Peter when he came to him and said, uh, you know, how, how many times should I forgive the Lord? How often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times. Peter was so gracious. Up to seven, I'm going to count, you know. And Jesus says to him, no, 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 no. Uh, I don't say to you seven times, but 77 times. In other words, infinity, you know. <laughs> uh, it, it just keeps going. Why? Because of all that you have been forgiven in Christ And then he adds in verse 14, and above all these, put on love which binds everything together in perfect harmony. What in the world could unite such a diverse group of people at the church of Colossae? People of all shapes and sizes and varying backgrounds from different cultures and experiences. It's love. 1 Corinthians 13, so now faith, hope, and love abide these three, but the greatest of these is love. It is love that brings everything together. Love that covers a multitude of sins. Love that unites everyone in Christ. And the result of this love is what he calls perfect harmony. Is that something that we know yet? No. (laughs) 
but we see it working in our lives and we see evidences. And there are moments where we get to experience this in the body of Christ, this perfect harmony. And it's a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful thing not only to us, but it's a beautiful thing to a real and dying world. Ephesians 5, Paul writes, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave Himself up for us, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. That's what love becomes. A fragrant offering not only to God, but to the world around us. We ought to be smelly in the best sense of the word, right? We ought to be a fragrant aroma when we are together and when we spread out from here and go through our, our normal activities of, of life, that people could smell the aroma of Christ on us. And then in verse 15, he begins to explain very practically how this happens. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. And doesn't it seem counterintuitive that we're this far into this, that I would then speed up to get through this next part of the text. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Uh, it's already 11.30. Let's, let's move fast. I, I decide that we're going to make part two of the sermon next week. So you can all sigh. We're going to pick up here next week. Because as I prepared and studied, I came to this verse and I thought, how can I speed up? I knew, I, I know the length of my outline when I'm writing my sermon. And I thought, I, I can't speed up and just... Past, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Let me say these things, though, just a matter of closing. The big picture of Colossians, Paul's dealing with these false teachers. They have been bringing in uh, add-ons, human philosophies, human regulations, and Paul's reminding them of their status in Christ. You're dead to sin, you're alive to Christ. You don't have to come up with these man-made philosophies. You don't have to add on regulations that bring you closer to God. You are in Christ. And because of this, that love of Christ that unites us then becomes the display, the fragrant aroma for others to see and praise God. Listen to this quote. Love then is the bond of perfection in the sense that it is that which unites believers, causing them to move forward to the goal of perfection. This interpretation is also in line with the Apostle's purpose in writing this letter. It's as if he were saying, not knowledge or philosophy, the kind of knowledge and philosophy of which false teachers boast, or obedience to human regulations, but love for one another, the spontaneous response to God's love for you that needs to be put on display. That's what is happening in and through our lives. It's something that we can both be convicted about and desire more and pray for more, but it's also something that we can look at the life of our church and thank God for the work that He's already done. We have a lot to be thankful for as we look at the body life of this church and the testimony that we can be. May this be true of us, that we would walk according to the word, knowing this. For Christ's love compels us, because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. May that be true of us today. Let's pray. Father, I do pray that your word would dwell in us richly, that your word would be the words ringing in our ears as we go today that Your Spirit would be the power working in us today to create that fragrant aroma that those around us might see and love You. That those who see it might come to be worshipers of You. That You would draw people to Yourself, people to be a part of this holy nation because of Your love put on display through us. 
And may we be quick to thank you for that work of your spirit in our lives. And may we be quick to pray for you to do a deeper work in our lives, peeling back the layers, showing us the sin that we need to repent of, and showing us then how to put on Christ. I pray that you would do this in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.